Welcome to episode four of the five-part Edward Patterson series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. In episode three, we heard Mr. Patterson discuss Operation Matterhorn, as well as the logistics of supplying the B-29 raids. In this episode, Mr. Patterson will talk about being awarded the Soldier's Medal and a near-death experience he had in being thrown from a plane in a crash upon landing. Guess who was a member of the 10th Air Force on the other side of the hump doing the exact same thing that Edward Patterson was doing on the other side of the hump? Robert McNamara. Who is Robert McNamara? For some people who may not know, he was the Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson. He's closely tied to the run-up of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And he was also known as what they called the Whiz Kids. He graduated from Harvard Business School, the same place that um, Edward uh, Ed went to as well to learn uh, statistical techniques for operating. He worked in the 10th bombing, uh, or the 10th Air Force on the other side of the hump and spent his days doing the same thing over there. After the war, he would go to work for Ford Motor Company and apply these statistical control unit methods to an ailing Ford Motor Company. Ford was struggling after the war, transitioning to building cars again after they were building tanks and bombers. And he used statistical control methods and really made a lot of people angry. He hired other fellow uh, people in from these uh, Ivy League schools that took these statistical analysis. And at first they called them the quiz kids because they kept asking questions about everything. And they did it in a derogatory way. Like, <laughs> oh, here comes the quiz kids. And so he and his team twisted it and they said, no, nah, we're the whiz kids. And so the, the moniker whiz kids for these hyper-technical, uh, statistically driven optimizers came from the Ford Motor Company. And when Kennedy ran for president and won, uh, he ended up tapping McNamara. He saw what he did for Ford and he wanted to do that for the Defense Department. So here, here we are in the middle of China <laughs> and we have the origins for a new style of business analytics that exists to this day. So when you hear people talk about machine learning and business analytics to optimize processes and reduce repetitive tasks, it all started out of these places like Harvard Business School. They were applied in World War II, and those successes translated to a post-war America, and we still live with those techniques to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and McNamara was called a technocrat. Yep. You know, and that was because he was applying scientific tech technical principles to processes to re increase efficiency. And so that was brought in to the Vietnam War, too. I mean, remember how important it was that we get statistical numbers on the number of deaths. Mm -hmm. That you know, we got into a firefight, how many people did we kill? Yeah. And that was the way that they were measuring things, you know. Well, um, you know, uh, that was a, a, the way he was actually applying that in the Vietnam War, too. So, yeah, and I think, yeah. I think what you're saying is there's sometimes where this works well and sometimes where it doesn't. Just like, just like we talk about Facebook today and the controversies associated yeah. with their algorithms to statistically predict what people do or don't do or to filter certain things. You know, we're still living with the consequences of this math-based, science-based approach to running everything. It has its place. It works well in some areas, but in other areas it doesn't. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of times when you're dealing with process, you're dealing with human beings, and a human being does not always adhere to a rigid set of statistical parameters. Yeah. So... 
Okay, so I finally got a chance to go over the statistical control unit thing. I hope it didn't bore everyone to death. Uh, so is what happens so often in many of the interviews that Ryan and I conduct, uh, once the veteran kind of has a chance to go through a lot of what they experienced, uh, you know, in a narrative kind of chronologically uh, throughout their military career, we end up spending a lot of time just kind of filling in the blanks and doing some Q&A and asking some various questions about uh, his time in the service that weren't covered. So now we're going to uh, cover some clips that um, that share some of these experiences and uh, I think you'll find these really fascinating. So in this next clip, uh, let's hear what you have to say about his experience with the hump. Well, uh, flying over the hump was a disaster because you went up, uh, I would say, around 18,000 feet to clear a lot of spaces. And that was one reason why they wanted to get that Burma Road opened up so they could get truck transportation up into China. So you had to bring gas on the plane to fly up and go back. And you'd have these uh, uh, tanks, uh, barrels in there for the uh, oil. And that was about, I would say, a good 60% or 70% of what came over the hump was uh, these uh, uh, gas planes. Yeah, fuel. Fuel, fuel, fuel. That was, uh, like you said, 60% of what they flew over. They flew over parts. They flew over human beings. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was all about fuel. And mm -hmm. uh, the, an airlift with fuel is highly inefficient at that time in particular. Um, you know, some of the conditions on the airbase also <clears throat> are maybe not well known. Um, and uh, there's a, a really good wiki page. It's called The Hump, not not the China Burma India Theater or anything like that, but the hump. And uh, it, it's fantastic. It talks about the disaster, how difficult it was flying over the hump. Well, first off, some of the wind gusts that could occur as these three different air masses collided near the Himalayas could reach 200 miles per hour. Mm. 200 that miles sounds per like, hour. That sounds like, I mean, it sounds almost like jet stream stuff, but it's it's obviously just the interaction of these different these weather yeah, with, with the terrain, with the yeah. topography. Yeah. And that's like, we're talking tornado-type winds mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. you know, which is absolutely amazing. And the ground crews, so the pilots uh, would often fly uh, daily round-trip flights around the clock in these horrible weather conditions. And some of the exhausted crews flew as many as three round-trips every day, particularly during some of the earlier days when they were low on pilots and equipment. Mechanics who were servicing the planes, they did it out in the open. They used tarps to cover the engines during the frequent downpours. About half the year in certain areas, like especially in 10th in India, had the monsoon season. Uh, and, and during the day, it got so hot that they would suffer burns on their flesh from uh, the sun-heated bare metal. Mm. So so nothing was easy. Everything was was really difficult. Um, you know, you have, you have planes icing up. You had hail that would go through. You had planes getting struck by lightning. But they weren't getting attacked. Well, they were. These. They were. And in fact, one of the other issues that they had had to do with losses associated with the Japanese air bases on the India side and the China side attacking some of these transports as okay. they came across. Mm. So uh, there's this really interesting story, though, that in addition to losses from weather and mechanical failure, these were unarmed, unescorted transport aircraft flying the hump were occasionally attacked by Japanese fighters. Here's an interesting anecdote. Uh, a Lieutenant Wally A. Gaiata returned fire in desperation from his transport 
while piloting a C-46 on one such mission. What he did was, in desperation against a fighter, he pushed a Browning automatic rifle out the cockpit window, firing a full magazine, and actually killed the Japanese pilot. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, just he just got so pissed at being attacked by these Japanese with no escorts that he's, he brought a BAR, a Browning automatic rifle. Well, that's, that's what the first thing I thought was, my goodness, where did he get that from? Yeah, but, but, but unfortunately, those, uh, those type of outcomes were rare. Uh, in fact, the Japanese had words. The Japanese pilots referred to the shooting down of these transport aircraft in a couple of ways. I'll try to do this in Japanese. Uh, Sijigiri. Sijigiri is one of the words that they use to describe these transport planes, and Sijigiri is roughly trans, uh, translated as cutting down a casually met stranger. <laughs> Here, here's another one that they use to describe shooting down these uh, transport planes. Akago no te wo henaru. And that means twisting. Let's see if I can get this page right. Twisting a baby's arm. <laughs> the Japanese fighter pilots, it was so easy for them once they were able to make it through certain air defenses and go and attack these transports, like go after them while they were flying, that they described uh, these transports and shooting them down as twisting a baby's arm mm. or casually cutting down a stranger. It was like, as we would say, taking candy from a baby. Yeah, right. That's right? what popped in my head. So yeah, you had all these things going on at the same time. Uh, kind of sucked to be a pilot in a CBI or in mm -hmm. a 10th Air Force. This next clip is going to talk a little bit more uh, about uh, some of the experiences in China during this time. Uh, one of the experiences I had uh, was uh, up at the Chengdu area and... Uh, I was at this A-4 base, and it was necessary to go down to A-1. That was where the headquarters were uh, for this operation. And while we were there, a plane crashed, and we were right there by the runway, and it, uh, boy, just burst in the fire. And uh, here was this guy hanging by his foot out of the pilot's window. He didn't make it. Jeez. So Paul and I drove over with this Jeep that we had and stood up there and lifted this guy out and brought him down. And we had you know, probably 50 feet or so away, that damn plane exploded. Jeez. And boy, you talk about getting blown around there. Uh, we didn't get blown out of the Jeep, but we sure came close to it. <clears throat> we took him to what was the medical center in another tent. Yeah. And so Paul and I, as a result of that, got the soldier's medal. Mm -hmm. So what is the soldier's medal? I didn't know. The soldier's medal is given to people who perform heroic acts, like the Medal of Honor, in a non-combat situation. So in this case, he said that this happened in Chengdu, which was the main forward operating base for these B-29s. That's what the A-1 base, A-4 base, and whatnot was. He was, at this point, was stationed down in Kunming in the, the main headquarters. They were visiting Chengdu. They were doing business there, but they were not in combat. And when he and his fellow soldier uh, saw a plane crash with this guy hanging out the window when it crashed, and they went out there and... Um, put themselves in jeopardy of dying to save this man, the U.S. military years ago 
decided that there needed to be a way to reward soldiers who did acts of heroism, but not in a combat role, Mm -hmm. like whether they were training or behind the main line of resistance. And they both received this. So you can think of this medal as being essentially a silver star or a medal of honor for saving someone's life, putting heroes at danger, but not in directly in a combat zone. So was the fellow alive when they pulled him out or did he die later or was he already dead? He was alive when he pulled mm-hmm. him out and he died in the hospital. Mm-hmm. He would okay. not survive, okay. uh, which is, uh, you know, really sad, but also courageous on their part to, to see this happening. And they could have just, these were, these were staff officers on the general staff. They could have just said, we're going to wait for the crews that rescue people to rescue people. But instead they, they took the initiative. They were already in a Jeep and they went over there and they, they dragged the guy out and dramatically the plane blew up, which is what can happen when planes crash and there's, you know, these planes had 100 octane gasoline in them. So, uh, it, this is, this goes back to something that you and I have talked quite a bit about as we re-listen to these, to these interviews that were conducted. And this one, I think was, uh, 2009 is that, um, yeah, I heard that. I, I I vaguely remember him talking about it, but it wasn't until I'm I'm listening to it carefully and doing prep for this podcast that I start looking into it. It's like, wow, that's a major decoration. That's a mm-hmm. big deal. Mm-hmm. So uh, he just he just described doing what he could do there uh, at that airbase. Uh, and so the the next clip that we're going to roll into uh, is uh, another experience that he had as uh, a member of the 14th Air Force, working the general staff, flying the hump dealing with the day-to-day things that can go wrong when you're in a combat situation in a f- part of the world that doesn't have a lot of developed infrastructure. Then I had another experience. Uh, I was flying one of these planes to a base because we were scattered, having 10 bases there. You couldn't all be at one place. Um, I was on a C-46 and we were landing, and we didn't make it. And that plane grounded, and I don't know what happened, but the next thing I know, I was hit out the window, or out the door. And I was damn lucky. We just, there were three of us, and we, when that plane hit, we were standing up. There wasn't any place to get tied down. but. That door was open. We all went out and landed in a rice paddy. <laughs> if we hadn't landed in that dadgum rice paddy, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Mm. So you were, you crashed, the plane crashed, plane and, it, crashed. And, it, and you fell it, out of the plane in a rice paddy. It, it made a jerk, and the, wind, the door being open, we were ready to unload. Mm-hmm. All three of us were standing in that area, and bang, we went right out the, the door. Woo! Man, that's pretty close. Oh, my goodness. So did he, I wonder if anyone else died in that accident, Just, you know, if they were the sole survivors or what? Goes you know? back to the, the topic you and I have talked about before, all of these unanswered <laughs> questions. Didn't I didn't ask that, and it would have been a good question to ask, but to add a little more color to what he's saying, these uh, transports had these big doors, these double doors that opened so you could unload the contents more easily. So it wasn't a little skinny, you know, one person door like you're used to seeing. It would have been a big door. And as they were landing, they thought everything was fine. And these guys, now this would not meet OSHA standards today. These guys were just kind of hanging on to the side of the plane as they were landing on this big double door that was already open. 
And when it landed, it crashed, which of course they didn't anticipate. And when they crashed, they were thrown out of the plane into a rice paddy, which is the only thing that saved their lives. If it were, you know, a hardened runway or something, it would have killed them. It's, uh, we've said this before in other podcasts, there's a lot of ways to die in a war. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, um, you know, these guys, these are major moments in their lives. And for them to be able to look back on this and go, you realize how close I came to not being here in that moment right there? I, I was just standing there. Right. And he could have done just... Boom, just like that, could have been gone. So here he is in Tulsa traffic in 1986, and someone rear-ends him and doesn't have insurance, and some people would freak out. Oh, my car's wrecking. <laughs> He's like, hell, I've been in accidents. I got thrown out of a freaking plane. <laughs> I swear, you know, here, just just go. Take care of your stuff and leave. Yeah. You know, And it goes back to other things we said before about when you experience these things, you know, your, uh, your continuum of what's dangerous starts to become expanded, and uh, it definitely did for him. Uh, and it wasn't just uh, crashes and the hump that we've talked about. We've talked about the Japanese. And this next clip is going to speak to a Japanese offensive that uh, he witnessed firsthand in Chengdu. But we had uh, lots of experiences of uh, Japs coming over, bombing. When I was down at Chengdu, uh, uh, one night uh, a Jap bomber came in there, maybe several. And I was in this tent, and it was warm, and the sides were up. And uh, I was living in a tent that was at the end of the line. And boy, all of a sudden we heard that boom, 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 boom. We looked out there, and you could see those explosions of those bombs. Mm. And they must have been about 100 yards from us. And boy, just lying there in bed and seeing all those flashes out like that. So that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, I just no. just an exclamation for it's me. It's like, yeah, yeah. damn. <laughs> so um, what he's describing is part of a Japanese offensive. This is late 1944. And as we already mentioned earlier, it was June, July of 1944 when we started bombing uh, 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 certain supply depots in China and also Japan proper from China. And in late 1944, we were just starting to send bombers from the Marianas to Japan. So, so the, 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 the B-20Ns for China were still kind of, by late 1944, really the only game in town. And the Japanese wanted to shut it down. So there was a, um, a Japanese offensive in late 44 called uh, Ichigo. Um, I don't know what that means. Someone that speaks Japanese can tell me. But <laughs> what, what the whole offensive was is for the Japanese to push west and to, to take over these B-29 bases, to attack Chengdu. As we said earlier, the Japanese are only 60 miles away. Well, the uh, Americans got wind of this, and they said in order to, what they want to do to slow the enemy advance is to go after their supplies. So this goes back to something you were asking earlier, Ryan. So late 1944, in order to slow the advance, uh, Major General Claire Lee Chenault, who was part of the American volunteer group mm-hmm. in 1940, which was, or 39, this was a group of Americans who were paid by General Chiang Kai-shek to fly their P-40 Warhawks, which had the paint of a, of a shark's teeth on the front. You guys on the audience probably heard it, to uh, basically be their paid mercenary air force, their fighter wing. And when Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, uh, that unit was dissolved and rolled into. Those pilots were asked to join the regular Army or Marine or Navy Air Force. And Chenault was promoted to a general 
and was in charge of the 14th Air Force. This Air Force that we've been talking about in China was Lair, was uh, was uh, Claire Chenault's baby. Mm. So he was rewarded for his uh, okay. his tactics and his efforts as part of the American Dep Volunteer Group. Well, this this general, Major General Claire Lee Chenault of the 14th Air Force, he asked for raids on Japanese supplies at Hankow. This is where the Japanese are getting supplied. And so the Joint Chiefs directed this to, to, to General LeMay, who was in charge of the entire bomber force in the Pacific. And what he decided to do was a test. So on December 18th, again, this is late 44, LeMay launched the fire raid, the very first fire raid in the Southeast Pacific. He sent 84 B-29s in at medium altitude with 500 tons of incendiary bombs. And the attack left Hankow, this large supply area in China, burning for three days. Mm. This proved the effectiveness of these incendiary weapons against predominantly wooden architecture in the Far East. So not only was the genesis of the attack on the homelands of China, by of, of Japan, by uh, bombers occur in China, but the very first fire raid that we did, that we inflicted, was actually on a Chinese city that was being used as a supply base. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. So, so when he talked about being strafed and those bombers coming into Chengdu, that was part of a Japanese push to take over those bases. And when the Americans firebombed Hankow and burned up all their supplies, they had to retreat. Mm-hmm. You know, and he mentioned that they would come in, these firebombings, they'd come in about medium altitude. There was a fellow that I interviewed that we'll cover at some point. His name is Fred Dimmitt, and he was a B-29 crew member. And described going on some of these raids, these firebombing raids, and they would be flying over Tokyo, and their bomb bays would be open after they dropped their bombs, and and, and flaming debris would come up yes. into into the into the bomb bay, into the bomb bay, and into the bomber. Yeah, pieces of house. They, I, I've read why eyewitnesses accounts of these fire raids over Japan, which started in China in Hankow. We fire raided a Chinese city mm-hmm. when we applied that, or, or LeMay did in, in, in Japan, that whole walls and doors were, were floating through the air. Whole pieces of structure wow. were being lifted by the firestorm. So um, again, a little known piece of uh, World War II in the Pacific is how important the CBI was. Uh, not just to keep Japan, not Japan, but to China in the war so we could tie up all these Japanese forces. But there was also a lot of experimentation going on. It was the genesis of uh, heavy airlift and sustained airlift. Uh, it was, it, it, it has a level of importance that has not been ascribed to it in post-war World War II. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not done. We got some more to cover. So this uh, next uh, clip uh, talks a little bit about uh, their early warning network. Uh, we experienced a lot of uh, bombings from Japs, and they weren't supposed to have happened because they had this network over there. And unfortunately, the network were men that were running up and telling somebody, and then they'd tell somebody. So it was a human network, and oftentimes we didn't uh, get the word. This is this was common in Asia. So I read a book called They Fought Alone, and it's about the American-led guerrilla effort in the Philippines after the fall of the Philippines and the Japanese in 1942. And they used something called the bamboo telegraph. They didn't have an actual telegraph. Uh, they didn't have any real air force or anything like that. 
the bamboo telegraph was nothing more than a, a, a series of messengers that would communicate from village to village and town to town. And it ended up being very, very uh, effective. Hmm. As, as long as you have people dedicated to keeping the bamboo network open and exchanging information and ideas, it was a form of an early, net, uh, early warning network. Now, I'm sure that Edward Patterson would have preferred to have, you know, some high-powered uh, radar arrays in the area. But in a lot of these areas in Southeast uh, Asia where we fought, uh, the bamboo network was the primary source of communication. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in this next clip, we're going to hear him speak a little bit about uh, General LeMay. They were after these big 29s, and I can't think of the general that uh, commanded the big 29. He became the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force. Is it LeMay? Huh? Is it LeMay? Yes. Okay. How do you do it? Well, yeah, General LeMay. You're such a geek. He was uh, a one-star general at that time, and they had these 29s up there. And, uh, you know, it. I don't know how many flights over the hump they took. Because, and then having the fighter planes, our fighter, uh, uh, a P-40, could only go about 700 miles. So and they would go over to the tail end of, uh, of the Japanese islands. That was as far as they could go at that time. This was before they were using the planes out of these islands in the Pacific. But uh, anyway, uh, they decided, LeMay and whoever else was in the thing, decided that it was useless to use those 29s to go over there to Japan. Yeah, so this is the kind of the end of the strategic bombing campaign out of China uh, from the 14th Air Force. So LeMay took over the 20th Bomber Command uh, that was in Chengdu, that was part of the 14th Air Force, uh, in August uh, 20th of 1944. So again, before we had the ability to bomb the Japanese homeland from the Marianas, from, from, from uh, Guam, Tinian, and Saipan. And during that time, he took all the things he learned from being um, an innovative thinker of uh, strategic bombing in Europe and applied it in this theater, uh, including the firebombing raid that we just talked mm -hmm. about that basically thwarted a Japanese offensive. But by, um, by the end of the year, uh, by the end of 1944, he realized that it just, it, like he said, uh, Edward, it wasn't worth it. That it doesn't make any sense to fly B-29s out of China. And so uh, he would leave China and go to where the loci of our bomb never now was, which was in the Marianas Islands, about 1,300 miles off the coast of Japan. And that's where they would conduct the bombing campaign for the rest of the war, including mm -hmm. dropping the atom bomb. Uh, which LeMay and his Air Force would, would have, uh, basically conducted that information. So they still kept B-29s in China. They were still being used, but they were being used um, to help bomb targets in and around the area to keep the Japanese at bay. But the strategic bombing campaign of Japan from China is over. Hmm. Oh, man, hey, before I introduce the next clip, Brian, your wife just brought out some ginger snaps. And I cannot wait to have one of these here. Let me see these. I don't, okay. I, I don't like the really hard ones. Oh, these are so soft. Mmm. These are really good. Mm -hmm. Nice and sugary and gingery. 
Oh, man. It's good to be the king. Thank you, Aaron. I know when you're listening someday, you'll smile right now. I love you. Or be grossed out by the sound of us eating a ginger snap. (laughs) So in this next clip, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, they're winding down the war effort. It's getting into 1945, um, where he was when the atom bomb was dropped. Yeah, you know, that was one of the pitiful things about you'd have a, a good friend that was a fighter pilot, and they were a different group, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Quite individualistic. <laughs> they didn't mind telling the, the colonel to go to hell. <laughs> and, and instead of putting them in a tank someplace, yeah. they'd have a big old argument. And finally, I remember Colonel Chandler saying, now, fellas, this is what we're going to do. Keep your damn mouth shut. We're not. <laughs> that's pilots, that's for sure. Where were you when uh, the atom bomb was dropped? Uh, I was in China. Yeah, how did you hear about it? Well, I thought it was great. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, heck yes. Um, through intelligence, uh, we knew or found that they were working on a bomb that would excel any kind of bomb that we were presently using. And uh, we didn't know it was nuclear or anything like that, but the rumor mill was out that there was soon to be a bomb or bombs that would uh, be very devastating when they were used. Uh, we got an inkling of that from uh, when the B-29s were down at A-1, that uh, there, there was something in the mill. Yeah, something big in the mill. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, um, at this point in the war, um, I mean, I don't know how many guys we've spoken to that when the atom bomb was dropped, that saved their lives. Um, you know, and, and to think about it, everything that was going on at this time during the war, the public was very weary of what was going on with the war. Um, we were having war bond drives and having a difficult time sustaining the war bond drives. Um, that's why the Surbachi flag raising was such a big coup for, for the USO or for, you know, the war effort and everything. But, uh, um, how many guys have we heard from that just that 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 say that 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 saved their lives and then there was no doubt that this was the right thing to yeah, do? All of them, yeah, all, everyone. Them. There we sort of everyone we've interviewed, and believe me, it's not the world. Right. But we, we we talked about statistical control unit, right? Statistics is a study of taking a smaller population and extrapolating those results or applying them to a larger one. If we take our two hundred or so interviews we've done and extrapolate that out, we don't have a single instance of anyone we interviewed who thought like dropping the the atom bomb was a mistake. Culturally, how we view these things change. And today you'll find a lot of historians and people who felt like it wasn't necessary and it was a mistake. But one of the advantages to having these oral firsthand personal accounts is that you get to hear people talk about their impression or their opinions or their views of what was happening at that time through the lens during the time these decisions were made. No Monday morning quarterback going on here. Yeah. And if you take away the Monday morning quarterbacks and you look at the people who were living at that time and prosecuting this war and dying and living in sewer pipes, they all wanted the <laughs> atom bomb to be dropped. That's just a fact. And the other thing I like about this clip is most of the people that we interview are not officers. 
We mm-hmm. only have a handful of officers. Most of them are grunts, right? Privates, lance corporals. Right. They didn't know exactly what the atom bomb was, and they sure as hell didn't have any, as he said, rumors or inklings of its use. That's the first time I've heard that there was any sort of an inkling of something yeah, going along that like he that. he kind of knew. And why would he? He's on the general staff of the 14th Air Force. If there's two Air Forces that could drop an atom bomb on Japan, it would have been the 14th Air Force in China, which he was part of, or ultimately the one that did drop it, which is the B-29s that flew out of the Marianas. Mm, so wow. he he would probably have some views as to these sorts of things, this inside baseball sort of uh, information. This concludes episode four of the five-part Edward Patterson series on the Warrior Next Door podcast. Please join us next time for the final episode, episode five, where Mr. Patterson talks about statistics, the notable 10th Air Force alumni, as well as some pretty interesting stories that took place while he was in Shanghai.